stay in Strand Street area where they're building the 18 story building, which we are not happy about. This. We are truly not happy about it. And I wish the developer can see this. I don't flip and care. All the way like we puka. All eyes on me like I'm Tupac. I'm leading my people like Musa. Everyone saying saluta. I was rolling with them killers, feeling like a Michael Colliani. You were sleeping with the fishes, we was eating curry and biryani. In Puka. 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 All the way like Puka. All the way like Puka. All the way like Puka. Welcome to the story of Boerkarp, a three-part podcast series. This is part three. Today we'll talk about Boerkarp's heritage status, gentrification, and try and determine if there's in fact any advantages for locals when the architecture of spatial planning in urban areas changes in order to make them appealing to the more affluent. We've also got a special guest in studio for you, EWN's Monique Mortlock. The journalist who's been on the Boerkarp beat for some time. She's been covering issues surrounding the areas, heritage site declaration, protests, court cases and new developments. I'm Haji Mohammed Dalji. And I'm Rebecca Davis and we're your hosts. Boerkarp has long been one of the most contested urban areas in South Africa where issues of gentrification are concerned. And last year the precinct made headlines when residents took to the streets to try and stop a crane from entering the area. The crane was on its way to a new high-rise development on Lyon Street. And it wasn't long before the 50 protesters found themselves caught in a heated standoff with riot police officers who tried to force them off the streets using shields and stun grenades. Many of the residents were pensioners who faced unnecessary force, with four of them arrested. Thank you very much. Well, just one What makes all of this worse is that the protesters were fairly peaceful, as I understand. Many reports even said that at one point, all community members did was gather and pray in front of the crane. We know that South Africa in general has a trigger-happy ride police, but this for me seemed a bit like a situation that was highly skewed and fell in favour of what was effectively a corporate property developer, when in fact the state's primary responsibility should be to protect its citizens. But it seemed like the opposite occurred. With they building this yesterday, a man lost his life from that building. Due to that building, it's unwanted. Bad things is going to happen. And I'm afraid for this crane at the back here. Thank you very much. Well, let's move away before the police. So to get all of this into perspective and obtain a fuller picture, we thought it might be helpful to get some valuable insights from a journalist who's actually been covering the story and speaking to the community for a while. Welcome to the story of Burkarp, Monique. Thanks, Rebecca and Haji. Good to be here. And good to have you. So, Monique, let's get into this a bit. Give us some colour on the scene. So, you know, at this point in time, you've just chatted to a lady who said a man died because of the development. She clearly sounds frustrated and afraid. Tell us more. We couldn't verify that woman's claim that someone had died as a result of right. the development. We checked with police, with some of the people. Some of the people in the area um, said they, they heard about it, but no one could actually mm. confirm it. Now, a group of mostly elderly residents 
they had stood at one of the entrances to work up on Beitengracht Street. They were linking arms and forming a type of chain to stop the cranes from moving in towards a development on Lion Street, right. all the while facing off against Metro Cops. Now, what you have to know is that the developers, Block, had obtained an interdict against anyone who tried to stop the construction vehicles from entering the area because the site had been petrol bombed a couple of months before. There was also another group, a mix of youngsters and older people running up towards Line Street, shouting at the officers who were trying to keep them at bay. At one point, when the loss of the cranes wanted to move in, those who were standing in the chain tried to block it with their bodies, all the while peacefully singing an Islamic prayer. Things then escalated pretty quickly as officers started pushing them back, like physically pushing them back, Mm. shouting at the protesters to disperse, eventually using stun grenades and tear gas to break them up. You know, I've seen my fair share of protests before, but I really can't remember witnessing this kind of force being used on older community. Or um, minors, for that matter. Hmm. In one of the clips, Monique, there's a disturbing sound of shrieks of men and women screaming, and they're saying, it's a child, it's a child. Let's have a listen. Things went pretty crazy at this point as the officers were physically pushing the residents, the elderly residents as well, they were pushing them back. And one of the protesters, uh, she was a young woman who's the daughter of one of the community leaders. And an officer, and at one point even two officers, tried to detain Mm. her, but she was putting up one hell of a fight, all while her mom tried to pull her away and other residents were also trying to help, shouting at the officers to let her go. I later found out she's not actually a minor, but Mm. obviously in that instance, the community and her mom just wanted to protect Mm. her and get her out of the officer's grasp. Mm. So how does this peaceful protest, and I put that in quotation marks because obviously it wasn't, how does it all end? The residents, they were obviously furious because the cranes had still managed to get up to the site, so the development was still continuing. Four people were arrested that day, although the case against them didn't go any further after that. Community leaders and residents appeared in court shortly after that protest to object to blocks interdict. Mm -hmm. They also filed an application for the Western Cape High Court to review the sale of that Lion Street property. Just for our listeners, block is not just an apartment block. (laughs) It's the actual name of a massive property developer who's bought plenty of properties in Mm. Cape Town and been developing, I think, what we would call minimalist living spaces at very high prices. Luxury apartments. Okay. You've been listening to part three of the story of Burkhav and we're joined today by Monique Mortlock, our special guest and correspondent. Monique's just been catching us up on the protests that took place in the area last year when residents tried to stop a crane from entering the area. So at the moment, what we've got is the protests have come to a rather violent end. Mm. People have been arrested, sun guns have been shot and off to court we go. Now, this legal battle has been a long one. 
with lots of developments in the case taking place, like technicalities over nine community members whose names weren't identified in the court documents, but the developer wanted their names, etc., etc. Right. And in May, Block asked the court to transfer the interdict to Prime Point Properties, who they'd signed over the Lime Street property to. The court denied this request, though. Mm. Now, both parties are fighting over the legal costs. The residents obviously want the developers to foot the bill because many of them can't afford it, Mm. while Block wants them to pay up. And this case is still ongoing. And obviously, parallel to all of this, we've had the whole heritage status debate going on. And then just recently, after a four-year fight, you know, Cape Town's oldest suburbia finally received heritage protection. Yes. In May, Arts and Culture Minister Natim Tetwa announced that 19 sites in the Boa Cup were now officially national heritage sites. And this is something the community has wanted for years already, as they believe if the Boa Cup is a heritage site, no more high-dice developments. Mm-hmm. So naturally, many residents were happy with the news and they are hoping more areas within the suburb will be declared a national heritage site. Here's Ben Mwasinga, manager of the Built Environment Unit at the South African Heritage Resource Agency. And he's explaining the process and how they came to decide on which sites should be part of the declaration. This declaration process um, was a bit of a complex one as the Bork Up is an entire neighborhood and not an individual site such as the Union Buildings or Parliament, which are also national heritage sites. So with this particular process, We decided to have a bottom-up approach, meaning that we allowed the community to nominate sites that they felt told the story of the Bork Up more clearly than other sites may have, which had less research at the time. So the mosques in the Bork Up were all determined as sites that will form part of phase one. The Tanabaru Kramat was also considered to be one of the sites that would form part of the first phase of the declaration. We then looked at the schools in the Bork Up, as well as some of the oldest buildings, such as Skorchetluf, and those buildings were all brought to Sarah by the community. Sarah then went ahead and did the relevant research and got the necessary information, notified the relevant owners. So we did the administrative tasks and facilitated all the public engagements we had. That is the the key process. The Bork Up was originally nominated in 2003 to Sarah. But because of various clashes with the community, as well as multiple breakdowns in in communication and negotiations within the stakeholder engagement process, it was never really finalized. But in this particular instance, we said, okay, bring the sites to us. We're not going to try to impose sites on you. We would rather the community brings the sites to Sara, and Sara will then process those. And this particular process of negotiation started in March 2018. According to Ben, it actually sounds like this has been going on for way more than four years, Monique. I think if I heard correctly, Ben says it goes all the way back to 2003. Mm -hmm. And it seems like they're still not completely done with the process. In fact, this was just phase one, merely because of the fact that there are more than over 500 identifiable heritage sites in Burkhop. And according to Ben, it could still take many more years. I mean, it's taking them more than a decade just to get to these 19 sites. So you can imagine how long it's still going to take just to get through the list of possible heritage sites that the city of Cape Town gave, and that's those 500 unidentifiable sites. The Heritage Resource Agency is also dealing with hundreds of other applications for declarations, not just the Boer Cup, but it is a step in the direction nonetheless. Here's Ben explaining the next phase of the process. 
For phase two, we want to expand and look at associated sites. We want to look at people's individual homes or the collective sort of buildings that make up this urban landscape, this unique urban landscape in Cape Town. So we also need to look at the streetscape and how to preserve the cobbled road, which also tells the story of the poor cup. So this is definitely phase one. If I take an estimated guess, we could have up to five to six phases, depending on how many buildings we declare um, at each point in time. But this is definitely only phase one. It's the very first step. But also, these were the sites which spoke broadly to everyone else in the community, such as the mosque, where most people would engage. And it's not just the Awal Mosque, which is the oldest mosque in South Africa. We also declared the Bonahol Islam, as well as other mosques, which also have different schools of Islam that people associate with. Now, Ben's mentioning an interesting and often overlooked aspect here when he speaks about declaring people's houses as heritage sites or falling on a heritage site. And that is that what happens to a community in terms of the aesthetic responsibilities Mm. of such a decision, because it comes with a lot of administration and upkeep. And I think that's something a lot of communities and onlookers don't really understand. It's reminiscent in a way of the story of the iconic New York bookstore Strand Books, which uh, this year has been facing a similar heritage decision. The New York authorities wanting to upgrade the building in which that bookstore is housed. And the owners of the bookstore coming out saying, please don't do this to us because the requirements it will place on us will be so onerous in terms of what we're allowed to do in terms of upkeep and maintenance and what the outside of the building has to look like. That They were really very anti it, which is something that you may not have predicted from the outside. So, I mean, what this effectively means, if I go back to the Strand Bookstore um, example that Bex just mentioned, what it effectively means is that for a store like that, if they were to renovate inside, I mean, Strand Bookstore is about four or five floors yeah. big. Mm. And if that's to renovate or change anything, there's a, a, a lot of red tape that, you know, it doesn't only restrict the, the developers, but the residents themselves. Monique, when you chatted to the community, did you get an idea that there was any understanding of this red tape? And what were their thoughts? Well, Haji, I don't think all of them fully understand all the schlep they'll have to go through if, for example, their house is declared a heritage site and they try to renovate mm. or paint it yeah. or do any type no, of... No cool tra- craze. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's going to have to go through the Heritage Resource Agency for approval. And it's mainly been the elderly residents or the ones who I've spoken to who are only seeing the hope and the positive aspects of the declaration, believing that it'll protect them from developers' interference. But community leaders have told me they've explained to residents the ramifications of a heritage declaration and how it'll impact them and they'll continue to do so um, just so that residents aren't surprised mm. if they are suddenly stopped from changing anything. Like a cool grey. Like yes. a cool... You are very into this cool grey. <laughs> Thank you so much to EWN's Monique Mortlock who's reporting on the Boer Cup situation has been really invaluable in terms of giving us an insight into what's happening there. So, Beck, catch us up on what we've done so far. We've been chatting about the Burkhop protests, the court case, the declaration of heritage status and what it means for residents as well as for developers. And in this final portion of the podcast, we're going to take a look at the Burkhop's future and one of the most controversial questions, perhaps the basic underlying question, is gentrification really all bad? Are there absolutely no positives or advantages to be found in such a situation? And I've been wondering the same thing because 
you know, when South Africa thinks about gentrification, we tend to think in nightmares. We think about rates going up, low-cost housing being cut down, high-rise buildings being risen, and, you know, the rich moving in and the poor moving out, which sort of creates this apartheid, you know, areas, segregation thing on racial and economic lines. Yeah, and I mean, we've seen it. We've seen it in front of our own eyes. We've seen it happen in areas like Woodstock, even Seapoint, where wealthy buy portions of land and the poor are displaced, sometimes poor who've been there for generations. Hadji, you were recently in New York in areas like Park Slope and Brooklyn, the Bowery, and you said you noticed there were developments there working towards more diverse communities instead of away from that picture of diversity. It was quite refreshing to me and surprising. But I mean, to be in the diversity in that moment, I even managed to chat to people from the community who mentioned things like running co-ops, keeping the economy thriving by creating spaces that people from all demographics have access to and maintaining working urban spaces that support livelihoods and cultural investments. So there's a part of me who do feels that it can be done in a fair way. But as South Africans, um, especially South Africans of colour, it's understandable that we live with the sort of PTSD from Mm. the Group Areas Act, you know, and we don't want it to come back. Anyway, I spoke to an architect about the effects of our spatial history. My name is John McGrenner. I am co-founder and director of One to One Agency of Engagement. And I'm now a PhD fellow at the uh, Pan-African College and Sustainable Cities based at the Global Change Institute at the University of the Witwatersrand. But our, our history, our spatial history, sort of undoes that a little bit and not, it doesn't change the lesson, the effect of it. It just has a different origin. The fact that from the 1913 Land Act where People in South Africa uh, lost their land. Black Black South Africans weren't allowed to own land anymore. And taken further to the 1950s Group Areas Act that then further reinforced those spatial divisions and separated the country effectively into many different countries, but white South Africa and black South Africa. And the idea that black South Africans live in the rural parts of the country. And rural, again, is this uh, certain idea that it's about an openness and a certain uh, feeling of a place and urban being white spaces, so the cities, and the townships actually sit in between those and are kind of a peri-urban condition that isn't urban, isn't rural, but is not actually the city. So when we talk about the city, we're often referring to like the dense urban parts of our cities. In Johannesburg, it's what we call the CBD. In Durban, it's downtown. In Cape Town, it's also kind of the CBD. But we have this idea that that is the city when we talk about it, but actually city itself as a word, um, if we're talking about the metropolitan definition of a city, in Johannesburg it extends all the way to Orange Farm and to Midrand, which you wouldn't think about when you talk about the city. So when we talk about gentrification and we talk about the city, we're often borrowing an idea of what the city is from the West, and that city then translates much cleanly into like downtown Joburg. So for example, Mabineng, which is an area of a city that is often the kind of example of gentrification, while, while it is capital investing into a neighborhood, and that neighborhood is then, the property values are increasing, people are being displaced. The way that capital is being used is upgrading an area, the same way that Velikazi Street is upgraded. But we don't call Velikazi Street gentrification because the kind of global rhetoric and the localized rhetoric is that gentrification is something that white capital does to poor black or non-white South Africans. So Jara mentions Maboneng in Joburg, which is definitely an area that's also been a sore spot in the gentrification debate. There's certainly an impression that this was a kind of isolated, unworkable space because it only caters to one demographic. It cuts ties with all this idea of diversity. Is that really what's going on? 
Kind of. And I did feel like that initially when I lived in Joburg. I actually hated going there because you had this block of developments that were accessible and made the city sort of safe for a certain demographic to go in. But then all around that you had, you know, the natural urban area of, of Joburg. So I do know what you mean. One developer went in, it grabbed monopoly on the area. But now that development company uh, called Propute, Pro- oh, it's a very difficult name. Property. Yeah, it's higher grade English. <laughs> has exited and is creating some positive effects in the area. Here's Jono explaining more. So when we talk about development and we talk about gentrification, I think we don't talk about the issue related to that, which is effectively displacement. And we don't talk about development that leads to displacement. We just look at any form of development that takes place in any part of the city as is going to displace. And while that has happened most um, a lot of the time, I think there is a place for a nuanced form of development that provides uh, different amenities, whether it's public amenities or social amenities or civic amenities, that's related to development that private sector capital can play a role in addressing, but there's no control over that. So a lot of the issues come because I think we also don't understand how to manage these things and to share power and agency. That makes sense on paper because it does take investment to create opportunity often. And unfortunately, because we live in an unequal society, that capital doesn't always exist in the hands we might want it to or in hands that are, you know, representative of our full society. But could it be that Mabaneng is a bit of an anomaly? You kind of get the sense that initially this wasn't a joint exercise, which is exactly why we have this problem in Burkhub as well. It's very much a case of developers versus community instead of diversity working together. Jono explains you the balance needed between control, capital and community. Yeah, I don't think Mabinang is how we should do it. It was more like a happy accident. But I do think we need to think about the role of capital and it comes down to, I think, an, an idea of how we understand city. And we keep looking to the north. We keep looking at New York and Berlin and London. And we compare the best parts of those cities, like Wall Street, Potsdam Platz, you know, um, I don't know, Hyde Park, to the worst parts of our cities, which in Johannesburg would be the bottom of Elbra there by um, empty and taxi rank. In Cape Town, it would be uh, probably like parts of Belleville and in Durban, it would be um, the edges of the city. And we say, look, look, this is an African city. This is why we shouldn't allow people to trade on the streets and to uh, have certain types of shops. But actually, there's a whole range of things that that type of offering gives people in terms of an economic uh, opportunities, in terms of buying, in terms of meeting, in terms of gathering. And the more we try to control that and curb that, the worse it is for those things. So some sort of like balanced infrastructure investment, a diversity of offerings, and the shared ownership of those offerings and other agency, because I think we're too scared to let go of certain controls, because capital wants to control so it can reinvest. But actually, if we allow things to work off different infrastructures and different frameworks, I don't exactly know what those are. I know in San Francisco, they tried to curb some of the effects of gentrification by creating a local currency in a neighborhood that was only valuable in that currency, so that the residents would get a certain amount of these sort of, I think of it, the area was called something like, I don't know, Bentley. So they were like Bentley packs. So the people who lived there got a certain amount of Bentley packs from the private developers or from the private forces that developed it so that they didn't have to pay, or they had the same access economically to things. So there have been examples of this in the rest of the world. But I think in South Africa, we have other things that work in our favor. We actually have a whole diversity of things and a really vibrant street culture. So when we talk about gentrification in South Africa, and in this case in Up, it seems that ultimately what we need as communities is, first of all, a better understanding of gentrification. 
that scary G word that I think a lot of people don't fully grasp. And also how gentrification is ultimately different from development. And they, they don't they don't mean the same thing exactly. Right. But what we also need, surely, is a kind of real collaboration between capital and the community. Exactly. But unfortunately, as all things South African, we have a very long way to go. I mean, we've got a massive tortured history that follows us around, especially when it comes to a sense of belonging, a place. Mm. You know, it manifests itself in what is ultimately land and community. And in the case of Burkhop, one of the oldest urban areas of colour in South Africa, which is built on history, tradition and culture, it's understandable that gentrification as an idea of displacement and erasure remains a threat. So, what's the way forward? You know what I'm going to say. Here's Jono. So what made the name, for example, while uh, Perpetuity itself uh, operated quite aggressively and, and was you know, a single person's vision of the city, it shifted the perception for a whole uh, emerging black upper middle class, and not just black, but all emerging consumer class of, of the post-94 Joburg, that living in the city isn't just about living in Hillbrow or living in an occupied building. There's actually other forms of, of living that we can invest in. And now that Perpetuity has closed down, we actually have an opportunity for other players to come in and offer some in-between services that Perpetuity wasn't allowing for. Okay, in summary, nuance, controlled capital, diversity instead of displacement. That's what we hope Bookup's future should look like. And paint. No cool grace. Lots and lots of paint. You've been listening to the story of Burkhardt. This is the last episode of a three-part series. And if you haven't caught episodes one and two yet, they're still available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you do your podcast listening. The story of Burkhardt is brought to you by EWN with sound engineering and editing by Gavin Dazel, presented and produced by Haji Mohammed Dauji and Rebecca Davis. Our thanks to Beat Bangers featuring Youngster CPT for the use of the song Burkarp, available wherever you get your music.